Hello, and welcome back to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. My name is Guru Nishan, and as always, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast uh, before we begin. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, who were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process your own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other forms of therapy as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. And please remember that we're here to listen and to support you. Um, on today's episode, we have a special treat. And before I get going and, and introduce what we're about to do, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for the feedback on our last episode. And thank you for following me on my new podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. Um, I'm on Substack, and you have a chance to um, comment on each episode and kind of interact with me. Um, and that's the idea here is to really create community because listening is a revolutionary act in our healing. And if we continue to engage and participate in the silence of the violence that's occurring around us because we don't know how to process it, because we don't know what to do with it, um, we actually become a, a part of that violence through our silence. So do the best you can to tune in and share these episodes because it's only as we speak to and discern and pay attention to the predatory patterns that are happening all around us that we can begin to feel and notice them within ourselves. And on that note, we have a special episode bringing back Darcy LaRoque from the last episode. I'm not going to read a bio because you can go back and you can hear her story and her setup of her story. 
but she basically got started in 3HO at age five in 1970, uh, 1971-ish, somewhere around that. Six. 1976? Yeah, I was born because in 71. You were five, right. Yes. You were born in yes. 71, 1976, you're five years old and you get pulled into 3HO and life begins. We're bringing her back today um, because the last episode was um, really creating the container and the structure and the outline of the details of her life, um, but also left out a lot of the uh, vulnerable uh, leftovers, what we like to call the impact of our lives. And Darcy and I had a conversation to follow up on our last episode, and she has a lot more to say. And I wanted to make that space um, because... You are an OG of our generation, in my opinion. There's there's um, this infamous language we bring to 3HO called the second gen or the first gen, and it leaves a bunch of people out because there's some kids that weren't born in, but they were brought in, and then there were other circumstances. But bottom line is, if you were a child and you are brought into this community underage in any capacity, you are a part of this generation of second gen. But within that, there are many layers and levels of the kids and the age groups. And because 3HO was so age segregated, um, there's a very distinct kind of posse amongst what generation you're in and what experiences you had or didn't and, and a, a bit of a caste system according to age. And Darcy really represents that original age group of, of children, what we like to call the laboratory children, that kind of initial group of kids that were, were the labs. And I'm going to let you take it from here, Darcy. Thank, thank you. you for coming back. No, thank you. Um, you know, I, as I thought about last week and this phrase kept coming to my head this week, a phrase that I have to be honest, I don't think I've said, thought about, or entertained for 30 years and I kept hearing keep up mm. and I kept in my own head going keep up equals shut up keep up equals shut up and I have not thought about that for decades and last mm. week as I told this anthropology this history and it was so it's so convoluted I mean you know my son's history from 5 to 13 is based on his grammar school experiences and a test he took in fourth grade and a Boy Scout trip. And mine is about the fact that I lived in multiple ashrams, which were really compounds, right? You were, in, you were completely isolated. And it's necessary to have the history to understand the impact. And I think it's also necessary, especially with the OG group, the guinea pigs, um, and we were the guinea pigs. How, again, I said this last week, how far could he push us? Um, how much could he get away with? And again, at the time, it didn't feel like that. It felt like a revolution. But in hindsight, it was a chess game and we were the pawns. Mm. And um, in telling that last week, I did what I always do. Um, it was factual. Um, it was timeline. It was crazy but I sanitize, I neutralize. I am systemic in what I say and how I say it so that I mitigate questions. Mm. It's how I talk when I talk to my friends. Oh yeah, I, I'm casual. I was raised in a cult. Um, oh yeah, I was in an ashram. Well, that sounds cool, right? That again, sounds like the adventure I ascribed to believe I was in. But at the end of the day, we were shuffled around. 
and that was part of the control. And we were not with our parents and that was part of the control. And the litany of things that were part of the control to both our parents and to us is vast. And in telling the history, some of it can come out anecdotal and that's not what it is. So I think that we've, some of us have gone through a process recently where we wrote the history and then we wrote the impact. So as long as last week was, can you imagine telling your own child's history for 10 years of your life? And it's that long and it's that crazy because that's not what you would have done to your own children. Not intentionally anyway. I know I would not have. I would never have intentionally had my child suffer. But that is what happened. We suffered. Yeah. And I want to pause and just kind of name some of the things that you just, or, or kind of highlight the things you just named. You talked about how you speak in factual, you neutralize the systemic nature of it and how it, it, um, it's a form of openness, but it doesn't include vulnerability, right? So it's, it's very open to like, yeah, I did this and this. And it, it, again, it speaks to kind of the adventure and awesomeness or uniqueness or exceptionalism, but not actually the fragmentation that each of those experiences caused. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So as you and I have spoken this week, um, I really, again, in the spirit of keep up equals shut up, Mm, thought to myself, and it hit me. I've never equated it. Me neither. I've never, I've never equated years and years of keep up G keep up G you know, and you hold your pose and you stay quiet and you discipline and it means shut up. Don't mm. complain. Don't cry. Don't react. Don't How react. Did we, don't react. How did we get here when you're holding a perfect yoga pose and then you hear the history and you're a new yoga student or you're a parent who's hearing me talk about this and you're like, ah, it wasn't so bad. My father did that right up until the day he died. He couldn't fathom that there was any cause of concern. I mean, Siri Singh Sab, Yogi Bhajan, however you want to call him, he, he, he knows better. A TSA agent knows better. Hmm. And Miranda, and I thought about that this week too, that if I were to go to LAX and just pick some random guy who happens to be charismatic and handsome and say, hey, my daughter's having a medical issue. Can I get your opinion? And he does and suddenly that's my medical diagnosis. Hey, random guy, I want, my daughter needs to be married. Random guy assigns me to some other dude in line because that's what happened. At the end of the day, he was just a man. Just a random dude. Just a random TSA. dude at TSA in India. And he dictated every facet of our lives. Mm. Well said. So- So when you, what we discussed is I'm going to actually, to keep myself on track, I'm going to read some portions of some, something I've written lately, and I'm going to read it almost verbatim, much like last week. I'm going to take out a couple things that are names because I am not comfortable outing anybody who has not gone through their own process. And our OG group is small in Espanola, and it would mean 
speaking on behalf of somebody else, which is not something I would be willing to do. Absolutely. Fair enough. So if I pause or hesitate, it's because I'm jumping a sentence or two. So the nature of my harms in no particular order. So this is, again, a young girl from the age of five to 13. And of the several of those years in the New Mexico ashram, without my parents, assigned to guardians, basically in a 3HO foster system. That's right. And if you want the, the details, go back and listen to that first episode right. so you can really hear the, the atmosphere and how she ended up in these atmospheres. And now we get kind of the inside version of Darcy going through all these experiences. So the nature of my harms in no in particular order. I was malnourished. I was sleep deprived. I was bullied. I became a bully. I was ostracized. I was shot with a gun, shot at with a gun at the Dorchester ashram. I was in the kitchen. We dressed daily in assigned clothes with only three colors allowed, white, blue, or gold. We were publicly shouted at if we were in public like freaks, called Q-tip, turbantine. We did everything we could to stand out, dressed head to toe in white turbans, no matter the situation. To this day, I am uncomfortable if my hair is down and I settle only when I'm wearing all white. In the areas of towns that we lived in, Dorchester and Española, that placed a target on our back. I speak to that as they were tougher communities within the areas. We stood out in the worst way possible. To this day, I do everything I can to not get noticed. I won't even open a gift in front of everyone for fear of attention. In all the ashrams and camps, we were woken every day at 3 a.m. We were forced to take a cold shower with ashram members watching us to ensure we didn't warm it up. We then did hours of yoga followed by meditation and prayer. This was done without food or water prior to the daily requirements. In Española, I was hit, I was slapped by my guardians. We were placed in a sexually charged peer environment as children where we were unsupervised. I had physical strain that lasts to this day from the intense physical expectations in our quote unquote exercise. I was angry, I was hungry. I lost all boundaries for normalcy being engaged by Yogi Bhajan himself. I lost relationships with my real family. I lost formal and proper education. I have food issues as we would go a month on the same exact diet in the camps, which was oranges, bananas, mung beans. I will starve myself and have poor nutrition as there was no foundation. I was taught that we must, must be thin. Fat is bad. As a teenager, I suffered from anorexia to stay thin for my body dysmorphia. I lack compassion as I think with what we went through, people are weak who haven't experienced such strain. I have physical scars from untreated medical issues on my legs and arms. I have severe dental issues due to no proper care. I have PTSD. I don't sleep well. Even as the youngest child, one of the youngest children in the Española ashram, I was forced to do exactly what the older kids did every day in quote unquote school. That included the mile, the long miles runs in the desert. Every other day, the one mile sprint hundreds of sit-ups, hundreds of squat thrusts, and being able to keep forced to keep the pace of a teenager at my age caused permanent damage to my back if I didn't, quote unquote, keep up. The entire group would be punished if one of us couldn't and we had to do it again. This pressure created a lifelong weight of feeling it is 100% on me to be responsible. I had severe anger management issues that carried into my arrest for assault. 
I don't know. I didn't know how to parent. I didn't learn how to love both to give or to get. I am emotionally cold. I have a survival instinct to take care of myself at all costs to those around me. And I accept with complete resignation that any way a man treats me should be tolerated and accepted without protest. I don't push myself to new levels as I'm insecure about a paycheck and I have this dire need to stay stable. I work from fear, not courage. I work all the time. I don't stop. I'm afraid to. I have spent literal decades in therapy to learn to love, to parent, to be married, to control my anger, and to learn to love myself. I believe that I deserve whatever happens to me. As a woman, I created the situations that landed me here. I feel guilt about eating meat as if it would be re as if I would be reincarnated as a bug. We were told as kids that even eating animal shaped carob cookies could land us reincarnated as bugs. I believed the world would end and we would live atop the mountain in New Mexico. I believed that when giving up my 3HO name, I became a whore and my father reminded me so until his death. I wear mostly conservative clothes that cover my body as I'm ashamed to be sensual. And at the end of all of this, I was raised to believe that I need to be strong and to admit or say anything in this list is a complete total failing of my teaching. And I believe that no matter what, and at all costs, I keep up. If you look at me, if you talk to me, you get none of this, nor do you experience my, my trauma because I'm a master of being fine. Hmm. Wow. I don't even know where to enter. I made a ton of notes. I saw, yeah. And I'm taking notes on all of the areas that feel so um, resonant. Um, but before I go into all that, I'm wondering if you can speak to a couple of them. Um, one sure. of them is uh, the, the sexually charged peer environment. I know you spoke uh -huh. to uh, sexual abuse and and something in, in the line you mentioned was not even recognizing it as abuse. Yeah, I think for me, and again, this is where I'm going to be very, very careful because it's my own experience. Uh -huh. um, and it involves uh, others that might not have processed things too. Correct. So understand correct. that one of the things, and before you go on, Dar Darcy, I want listeners to really hear one of the challenges around speaking to our 3HO experience is, and, and really any cult or high demand group is that the webs of our experiences are webbed in relational experiences. And so one of the ways that predatory um, patterns thrive is through our silence. And one of the reasons we stay silent isn't just for our own safety, but it's out of safety for others. And that's a big, that's a real thing because so much of our sense of self and belonging was about service to others. So it's almost like we don't belong, we don't exist, we only exist in relation to or in service to others. And so because we have so many webbed experiences, it's extra, extra hard to break our own silence because it involves other people, which we also don't want to hurt. So just know that there's a very enmeshed entanglement. It's not your fault for not being able to break silence. It's not your throat chakra, people. Okay. It's really a webbed, convoluted, um, deeply embedded um, constriction that is not only your own. And that web is real. So anyway, keep going to not um, expose others. I think others. for me to talk about that would be to understand that for me, um, to your point, Gurnishan, I mean, I'm going to be very protective. Um, 
I and that's a found... beautiful thing. I want to say it's a beautiful thing to do that. It's never wrong to not be ready to speak names. Just want you to know. I think the main part of it is to understand that I did not, I did not feel abused. And um, I felt comforted. I felt, I did, comfort's probably the best word. But I would also say I had my first orgasm when I was seven or eight years old. And I didn't know it was wrong to find comfort in other people at that age until I went on a sleepover after I left the HO. Um, again, there was no exit strategy. There was no help teaching me how to behave. And I attempted in sharing a queen size bed with my friend to share comfort. And um, she panicked. And in the middle of the night, her mother drove me home. Um, I never saw her again, of course. I didn't know it was wrong until that day. <laughs> and it was one of the, I mean, even to this day, I, I wish I could call her. Because <laughs> um, it was so, God, I was so ashamed. But I didn't know. I really didn't know. And um, I behaved as I did when I also would sometimes share beds. And I didn't know. And again, I think the part that's so important for me is that we weren't monitored. We weren't holistically guarded. Um, I didn't have a mom to run to and ask questions. You know, like there's so many people, especially adults who were like, they all turned out fine. On paper as a whole, we look amazing. Amazing. Many of us are incredibly high functioning. I have an amazing career. I have a great home. I have a, my son is epic. But at the end of the day, there are so many nuances and things that occurred to us that we had to learn. As opposed to, again, being able to just ask your mom. And or if your mom or dad were around, would the situation have even occurred? I don't I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> I also want to point out that one of the ways that we deflect from really facing our own experiences or examining 3HO properly um, and the ashrams properly and our particular yoga school or whatever group you find yourself in is by um, doing this weird comparison to others, right? And so I just want to point out that this can also happen in an environment where, where you're sexually abused, not you, but someone is sexually abused, um, say by their parents or within the household or within the church. And when silence is the normal, and even if you speak out and you say something, but then you're shushed, these things, you grow up feeling like this is a normal thing. You don't know something's wrong. So this isn't unique to 3HO folks, but what Darcy is pointing out is that within the context of, our commu of this community and being in a position of having guardians, um, the child swapping where parents were no longer the protectors of their own kids, oftentimes put in charge of other people's children that they didn't have that same emotional bond with. Um, lots and lots of violations occurred. Some were sexual, some were neglect, some were abandonment, some were hunger, some were physical, some were a combination. But if that's your normal, you ain't got nothing to compare it to. 
And in, then if the ethos of the teachings are, if you got a problem with your situation, then it's your problem, right? And as children, we're not just getting that, but the adults are getting it. So everything is reinforcing this outlook, which is why I find this keep up idea equals shut up is so interesting because never have I equated the two. And yet I remember dating a guy decades ago who was not in 3HO. And I said something about keep up when he was expressing a hard time he was going through. And he literally interpreted it that like I was cutting him off as if it was a shut up because it's, it's almost like a non-empathetic way of, of saying, get over yourself. Mm -hmm. 100%. I mean, it, it's 100%. And my, much like horror, it's one of my things my father did up until he died. Um, it's absolutely shut up. <laughs> and, you know, to take it back to the condition of our environment and me using foster care earlier is it reminds me in hindsight of the horror stories you hear about foster families that took on tons of kids beyond their capabilities just to get the money. Yeah. And I, I don't, I really don't know and understand the nuance of, again, where the guardians paid, were they given a stipend, but it can't, it wasn't about the money. It was about doing what he said, which was the form of currency. The form of currency in 3HO was getting in his good graces yes. so that you could grow within a system. So, you know, I having multiple children and we all had different situations. There were some children that, to your point, Gurnishan, were in very, very poor, poor trailers. They had nothing. I, and then there were some in the middle trailer. I mean, there was a, also an economic system within the structure and your everybody's version of have and have not, even when you think you have nothing, there's bottom levels of nothing. Mm. And mm. We, we all had that. Which creates a hierarchy of pain, right? It creates right. a hierarchy of trauma. And I think that's really relevant to the way that we communicate our pain or don't. So many of us hierarchize our, our pain as if it's, oh, we didn't go through that much. Yeah. No, 100%. And again, you know, we talked about that a little bit on the last one, but it's, it's me saying, I didn't go through India, thereby I don't get to speak. And it's every single system is unique of what each of us went through, whether it's the first Miri Piri, whether it's GNFC, then you go on, like it goes on and on and on and on. And, but at the beginning of it, and this is the part where I just want everybody to understand, like, how did we get here? How did we even get here? And please notice how loud the voices were in this OG group to get us where we are. Mm -hmm. Still fighting, still being the still being the older kids and the guardians. And I know within that there are those who are going to say there were also again the bullies. It's 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 a very muddy situation. And yes, there were some. I was one. I wasn't one in New Mexico. But I think that had I gone to India, I may have ended up there because when I left 3HO, I was most assuredly one in my regular school. Mm. I didn't mm. know how to handle 
any emotion except control through anger and violence. Mm. It was how I had control. And um, I had gone for years without any. And when I could control somebody who seemed weaker to me, it Mm. felt like the right thing to do. Which, again, in hindsight, I would have, if I had ever seen any indication of that from my child, the consequences. Mm. He'd be in therapy. I'd be apologizing to parents. We didn't have anybody to watch us to see this occurring. We only had people encouraging the hierarchy because the ashram was a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is stronger? And the currency of Yogi Bhajan's attention, as you the talk currency. about. Yes. Um, that, that is such a good languaging for it because it truly is. Like if, if a phone call came in from him, done. You know, if if he was coming into town, everything dropped. You know, like yeah. the currency of his attention, the currency of his approval. So yeah. adults would strive to be in that in that currency and um the children to the wayside, right? And that that was built into the teachings because the children don't need you because they're such strong souls without you and you are all so weak. And so it only added to that divide of neglect the children, you know, focus on me and your parents are weak, focus on me and kind of both directions of that. Yeah, and again, you know, in the letter I had read last week, Mm -hmm. so it was parents neglect the children because you suck. Basically, I mean, that's that's the yep. non-fancy language of what he told them over and over. They sucked. Yeah. And their job, horrible. they had delivered their job. They had given him the children of the future. And then you go into who got chosen for what guardian of what child and how that currency related to your favor with him, your access to him. And it was a it was just a trade program. We were bartered and we were only as good as what our parents could contribute. Mm. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't believe, because I think another common denominator, when you look at most of us, again, I'm not saying all of us ever, because there are definitely people who have, we've all struggled in different ways. There is a level of, again, control, um, evenness. Steady. Steady, 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 steady. Strong as steel, steady as stone, folks. Don't you Yes, all of the mantras. And at the end of the day, too, I think a lot of us are ended up being pretty damn good parents which then makes our parents feel justified. See, you turned out great. Look at you. My father borrowed money from me until the day he died. (laughs) I was so proud of how much money I was making. You know, um, they they were justified. Mm. And they didn't understand it was not because of them. It was in spite of them. And it was because of us. We Mm -hmm. rallied together we decided we would not um we decided it would be different but then as we know and i'm sure you've talked about this like 
Some parents then chose to send their own children to the same school that they went to that they were abused in. And that's a separate conversation that I hope somebody really digs into, because I think it's one of the biggest questions is, you know, why would you send your child to a school you were so abused at or you witnessed so much abuse at? And it would be a great conversation because I know for me, I went the opposite route. I did everything I could to make sure my son had the most normal childhood ever. But what I didn't know how to do, and I address this in order of importance, when I describe the impacts of my harm in order of importance, the mm. number one is parenting. I made sure that everything was right. He had great school. He had a great education. He had the best birthday parties. I mean, the best. We did Boy Scouts. We went camping. We would ditch school to go on adventures to Washington, D.C., or wherever it was to have a good adventure. At the end of the day, I didn't know how to do the emotional part. I am great. I, 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 if you hug me, I have to count mentally in my head to make sure I don't pull away too soon. Mm. I don't cuddle. <laughs> mm. um, I'm not, I, I believe that the actions um, were enough, were, were amazing, in fact. Um, but my son had the courage to tell me at 15, he wished I hugged him more. Mm. Talk about one of the days when this facade did crack. Wow. Um, I, he, he had written me a letter. It was part of a thing he had done in high school where they had to write letters to their parents. And he let me know that I didn't show him enough physical affection. Mm. Um, it broke me. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely broke me. And mm -hmm. that is when I started to change. Okay. I have to learn how to do this. Like I have to learn how to hug my kid. And I realized at the time I don't hug anybody. I don't, I don't, I will be next to you. I like this, but if I feel trapped, then that's where the bullying comes in. I want to hit you. I want to fight. Mm. Um, I want to get away. My mm. physical space is critical to me. But I had to learn that for my son to feel genuine love, his love language, I had to learn his love language. Mm. And I wish I had done it sooner. Um, it it, it, it's probably the biggest impact in my life was that I don't feel like I gave my son enough love in a way that he needed it. Let me clarify. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Through emotional affection and touching. Yeah. Um, there's just a couple of things in there, but one of them you brought up is, you know, how does one um, send their children to a school, right? That they were abused. And I just want to pause there and just, first of all, acknowledge all of you who might've done that and how common it is. Um, I want to think about the generational military families, generational boarding school families of alma maters where you absolutely had a history of abuse. But then what happens in abuse tolerant culture um, is it actually becomes a part of what makes us. So the form, how we do that is we actually... Um, 
first of all, I just want to pause and say everybody's way of handling trauma or forms of control are very unique. You can actually grow up in the same household and have very opposite responses. One could be don't touch me kind of person and the other person could be the opposite. They're over cuddler. So how we deal with complex trauma and how you naturally respond to it is actually quite potent. And there's no one right way, even if you grew up under the household, same household. So acknowledging that all of our ways of response um, is still trauma response, right? It, um, and it's unique to our own system of, of dealing with it. And I absolutely agree with you. I think it would be a great conversation. I'd love to hear more from those who chose it. And I know that now is probably a tough time because we're probably looking at it through a different lens than you might've ever looked at it through before. Like, why did I do that? What was it for? And when we start to re-examine segments of our life through a new lens, uh, a more informed lens, a less fragmented lens, you start to see a different picture. And all of that can be overwhelming. Um, so the thank you for that input. And thank you for speaking to the control mechanism. Um, you went into the, I'm going to overgive to my son, make sure he has it as much normal. And somebody else might have been like, really embraced the difference, really embraced the fact that they are different, that we are different. And I, I, I know I was like that. I embraced kind of the rebel difference aspect as opposed to let me see how I can assimilate. And all of them are totally normal for all of us. It's just how we found our way through. Yeah. And I would tell you, I mean, if it, my ex-husband had agreed, I would have sent my son to children's camp. <laughs> Interesting. Absolutely. I wouldn't have hesitated. And I would tell you, you know, in this, I was, I was hungry. I was injured. <laughs> it was not a good experience, but I would have 100% sent my son to children's camp if my ex-husband, who was very much not in 3HO, <laughs> would have agreed to it. He was like, no, he's going to the YMCA camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, when I would explain things we did, my ex-husband would look at me and go, so Darce, no, not normal. <laughs> and I was very lucky to have an ex-husband who very much stood his ground. And I even um, brought my son to solstice one year when he was about nine. And um, I'm looking around the solstice site and I think it was so large to me. Mm. And I really looked at my little son and I was keeping, you know, again, I had shared that moments happened in my life where I remembered things as he hit those ages. Yeah. And I'm keeping him close to me because I'm looking at the vastness of the land and I'm not letting him run off. And I was like, holy crap. Like this was the space that before he was even, I was even this age, I just had <laughs> carpe diem. And it is, it was overwhelming to realize the scope of what that loneliness must have done. Yeah. But again, I get why people continue to send their children to the schools. I wanted to send my child because I, I believed hundred percent, well, I didn't. And, and I would say the same for many of my friends. We didn't end up just as, just as YB predicted. We didn't end up being drug addicts. 
We didn't end up being alcoholics. We were very disciplined. We were high functioning. Look, you turned out, you turned out great. On paper to the common eye, yes, we did. And I saw my son and I was like, he would be strong going to this. This would be a good, good thing for him. But my ex-husband had the insight to, to know because he's challenged me on it. He even had said to me before we were engaged that if I didn't go to therapy, it was the first time I went, if I didn't go to therapy to learn how to be angry, mm. learn how to fight like a normal person, he would not move forward in our relationship. So I did. I thought he was an ass for saying it, but I loved him. And I didn't know I wasn't normal. Uh, when I when I switched gears into fight mode, I went to kill you. Verbally, physically, I hit, I punched. Mm. I had to learn to handle rage. I would be 95% steady and strong, but for that 5%, was I'm going to kill you. Ballistic. Yep. Ballistic. So when he, when he said with that line to you, um, Darcy, that you don't fight normal. Yes. Um, that's what he was getting at, that you basically turned into like, like a switch, a, fl- a switch is flipped and it, yes. and it's like an unleash. An Absolutely. Unleash. And then by the way, the second I was done, I was done. Mm. I couldn't understand why you were still upset. Hmm. <laughs> Because this, I have this ability still, and even that I frame it as ability, right? Like it's a gift. Right, right. And so I have this, response. I have this ability that I genuinely cannot remember emotion. I can remember events as I've shared in both of these conversations. I can remember details that friends of mine have called me this week going, oh my gosh, how do you even remember all that? Hmm but I cannot for the life of me tell you how I felt yesterday. Mm. I can't recall feeling. So I would go into this rage mode because that's what I also did as a child. And then I would be done. And I didn't understand why you were so, I don't, I still don't. I don't understand why anybody is still upset because when I'm finished, I'm finished. I logically understand Mm. because of course, right? I just did some sort of rage fest, which by the way, I have not done in decades at this point, Mm. but I can't understand somebody holding on to energy or anger. doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. And I absolutely know that goes to keep up, let go, move on. I don't care how much pain you were in this morning, trying to do this, that, or the other Utma move on. Yeah, and it goes back to the emotion commotion. Yeah. The non-safety and actually feeling and having our emotions, which folks, if you don't know yet, this is very, very linked to complex PTSD. So um, if you haven't gotten the book, the link will be in the show notes. But Peter Walker, the book is called CPTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. And his first book, which he recommends before reading this one, is called The Tao of Fully Feeling. So going into understanding complex trauma, the, the element of turning off our feelings and how much that was reinforced and still is within the ethos of the teachings around emotion, commotion, and neutrality. And this whole like 
fetishization of the sattvic energy, that kind of smooth, steady sattvic, as if we're not rajas and tamas too. We're all of these ranges and we have to be able to have access to all of them. But when we're only taught to operate at one point, then when, when you're speaking to this, it sounds like you were steady, 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 ballistic rage, and then done. Uh-huh. And be like, what's all your problem? You know, as and so yeah. this for your love for your partner to be like, yeah, you got to get therapy because what you're doing is not normal. Like that's mm-hmm. the first time you're hearing that from the outside. It was, and I was a um, he and I got together, started dating probably when I was about 23, 24. So I was probably about 23, 24 years old when I heard that for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I always feel like I owe, I owe. And sometimes I always feel like I have to make amends, like I'm an AA um, for emotion, because I, you know, when I got into high school, I was two years out of a cult, which at the time I did not equate any balance to. Here's me trying to be normal. And it's not like there was a, an assimilation class to how to, to behave, how to learn how to behave in normal social construct. Yeah. Um, and I... I did crazy things in high school that were extreme. Um, But they were also extreme in my ingrained habits. I remember not being willing to go to my boyfriend's prom. I mean, it was an overwhelming, overwhelming guttural. I'm not pretty enough. I, I shouldn't be here. And it wasn't normal high school stuff. Like I believed that. And then I would panic. And that's where that rage would come out. I would scream. I would say, don't do it. Don't do it. Like I would panic. Um, he tried to just reference me in a yearbook and I begged him not to. And ultimately he did not. He was just trying to reference me as somebody important in his life. And the idea of the attention, the idea that I was not worthy of this attention, this went on for years and years and years until my ex-husband, um, my ex-husband in, in, <laughs> basically it was him it was therapy or goodbye (laughs) and um I chose therapy um but I can't that that five years in between six years in between before I started there was no way to adapt and I'm sure other people have probably gone through that too who've left 3HO you think we're normal but in that first thing I read we were taught not to be normal we were taught not to assimilate not to blend in And there's such a pride in that, you know, I want to just pause and be like, how much of our sense of self, like, I don't know who else has gone through that, but um, for instance, your, your name is unique, right? And then wearing a turban or having long hair or having the name, it, it, there's a, a level of uniqueness that comes with it. And if you've always been taught to stand out, then who are you once you cut your hair? Who are you once you cut, take off your turban or shave your beard or look like a normal everyday average American? I didn't realize the impact psychologically of what was gonna go through me over many decades around this, around this. Because when exceptionalism is so a part of your core sense of self, but then you blend in as normal and normal is the antithesis of, of consciousness mm-hmm. and all that's blended into our own sense of self. Um, 
we, I think a lot of people oftentimes will cling to the teachings or the lifestyle because of that convolution, the convolution of wanting to be special. Yeah. And at, at the end of the day, it's interesting because within 3HO, wear the same color, wear the same outfit, all have Kalsa, all have singer car, right? So you're actually within 3HO supposed to blend, but it's designed that because you're in 3HO, you're special. That's right. And it's just, it's an impossible thing to balance emotionally when you come out because all of a sudden your looks, how you choose to dress, how you choose to do your hair, it does suddenly matter. <laughs> you And it's always mattered. We just have made it not matter, right? Like the whole right. thing you went on about not wearing tight clothes, even to this day, not covering your hair, um, right. what happens to you on a visceral level when you don't cover your hair, or you said something like when you wear white, you notice your system settle. Absolutely. Half my, I mean, I went to the dry cleaner yesterday and I dropped off gosh, 15 shirts. 10 were white, <laughs> maybe 10 plus. Yeah. Yeah. And I had three black ones. I still wear white a good 75% of my life. And I look at how many people say that have left 3HO or have kind of moved on and yet haven't changed their hairstyle much. Still the uh -huh. kind of plain, simple, no bangs hairstyle. How many people quote have left, but have never changed their vegetarian diet or even questioned it. Um, and a lot of other quote lifestyle things that are so in, in like bedrocked into our core self that we wouldn't even know how to start um, stretching into something else. I think feeling our emotions is one of those things, wearing our hair in, in different styles or different colors. Um, uh, like for me, I didn't get bangs until a year ago, but I had been cutting my hair since I was in my twenties. And mm -hmm. it, it was only when it occurred to me that that unconscious teaching around not getting bangs lived in mm -hmm. my psyche. And when I woke up to that, I think it was on a podcast. I was like, Oh, no. And I was like, I'm going to get bangs because I had to do it almost for my own sense of like stretch into a new sense of self. And let me see how this feels. Uh -huh. um, and not realizing I was operating under indoctrination. Yeah. For me, it was coloring my hair. Mm. I mean, you can't see it. You can. I've got all sorts of different colors going on my hair at any given time right now, but that was a big deal. Yeah. You know? and and the I fear the fear that comes up for me around coloring my hair. Like I don't touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. I am so with you. Yeah. And, you know, and that goes to, I was looking at my list because I promised you that, you know, we would go through some of those things and I'm, I, I'm looking at the next thing I talked about was marriage, but I've already dabbled in that a little bit. And then it, number three was food and sleep deprivation. And I wrote down, it may seem strange that food and sleep are third, but there's no way to help someone who has never been hungry, understand what it is like to be hungry for literally years of your life, how to understand that we were not even sleeping five hours a night as children, and how to explain that the combination of sleep deprivation, hunger, and extreme duress physically and mentally due to a child, when it's really all you know. My food issues continue to this day, and it talks about in children's camp, but I think part of it, well, that we were fed the same exact breakfast for weeks, for dinner, the same dinner. There was no nutrition. Diets were prescriptive by Yogi Bhajan in increments of 40 days. I don't even know what that was about, but it was a constant. 
I wrote a note. I have a friend who used to get strep throat as a child. She would be isolated in her trailer and have to eat kelp chapatis every day. Mm. Kelp chapatis. From the TSA agent ascribing medical care. Kelp chapatis. I want to read one of the lines you said. You're like, my food issues continue to this day. We were fed the same exact breakfast for weeks, oranges Mm -hmm. and old bananas and occasionally yogurt for dinner, mung beans that were all served out of a white, large bucket slopped into a bowl on the ground. There were warm, they were, they were warm as there was no active refrigeration at the solstice site. There was no nutrition, none. He was, we were starving. If you see photos of us, our eyes are sunken. We were told we could, couldn't eat animal crackers. There's that again. At the ashram, we were given limited food and it all depended on who you were fortunate enough to live with. My guardians kept me on a very strict diet so I would not gain weight. Our calorie intake was well below 1,000 calories a day consistently. To know if a meal will come, don't, let's see. I hoard, oh, okay, I'm going to keep going this. In high school, I was anorexic. I hoarded, I binged, I panicked about food then and now. Will it last? Don't want it. It won't be there. To not know if a meal will come and that often that meal depends on how you, well you behave is too much weight for a child. Yeah. Pause. Pause. There is something really big here in this food deprivation. Um, and the the I'm bringing it up because I'm really struggling a lot with food lately and Mm -hmm. I didn't ever have a sense of um, an identity around struggling with food I I didn't ever identify as bulimic or anorexic or overweight or underweight or any of those things I I feel like that whole thing was just like a frozen glacier in my experience but it's only been in the last year that I've been able to really identify um, that I think I'm in a constant state of starvation. Like, I think I'm hungry all the time. And what I notice, and because I'm doing so much somatic therapy, and I'm bringing this up for all of us, I'm just giving you my testimony here. What I notice is sometimes I can notice my hunger and then it goes away so fast and I'm extremely high functioning during this process. And so one of the grievings that has showed up for me um, in therapy in the last six months has been um, the grief of how well I can function on nothing. I'm nodding my head because <laughs> I can I can go I can go two days and not eat, and then I gorge. Um, I and I'm not hungry. I don't think I'm hungry. I don't, I don't feel it I'm in my hungry. stomach. You know, I don't get no. the headaches. I hear people say, oh gosh, I missed a meal. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean you missed a meal? I mean, I, I would tell you even for me, and this goes to the kelp thing, as a child, I had severe, severe constipation. Me too. I, and my I still, life. to this day, yeah. I go to the, I go, sorry, this is graphic. I go number two, maybe once a week if I'm lucky. Mm. And doctors are like, what, you know, when they ask the questions and I'm like my entire life, but my, as a child, it was noticed, but it wasn't, Hey, let's change the diet. Hey, let's give her more food. 
it was she needed to do I needed to do crow pose over the outhouses. You know how hard it is to do crow pose over an outhouse and not think you're going to fall in. Because for everybody out there at children's camp, we had outhouses, holes in the floor to go to the bathroom, not functioning toilets. And later, those came later. But I was told I had to do crow pose. Um, it's such a good point because I also had chronic constipation through my childhood and into my adult life. And I thought that was somewhat normal. Um, it wouldn't, you know, it was just the last 15, 20 years that I've really like actively worked on whatever that tightness in my belly, hiatal hernia, all that kind of like repressed emotion that was living in my stomach. Um, but again, you're, you're, you're bringing up when, when there was a thing, there was no actual real remedy. There was no actual real treatment. There wasn't actually real addressing, no changing of the food or other changes. It was just your fault. You're not in the right position to poop. Yeah. A hundred percent my fault. And then it also, you know, and I touched on this last time, going back to food, depending on the luck of who you lived with, because what you also learned and what I got to learn as I spoke to you last time on my ranch access was, oh, the closer you get to him, you get food. And not mm-hmm. only food, but good food. Not this crazy regimented diet he had other people on, but meals. <laughs> and right. um, to this day, I mean, to your point, food is a major, major issue for me. Darcy, I'm just, I'm blown away on it. You know, I, I have to tell you that it was on the Zoom call where I heard another fellow second gen of my gener- of my age, who I love, who I hadn't spoken to in decades, speak to her food challenges and speak to her own, you know, other relationship intimacy challenges. And suddenly I was like, well, I have all those things. I have those symptoms, but I would have never called them symptoms because I'm not going to be a victim of my life. I would have never out loud said, oh, I have constipation. That's so normal. There are remedies you can do about it, right? But but 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to identify a thing. In fact, going back to this food thing, this first started coming into my awareness like 10, 10 years, maybe in 2014 when I'm teaching Kundalini yoga. And I remember somebody saying something about food going on your comment. And somebody says something like, oh, when I eat this, I get so much energy. Or when I get this, blah, blah. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I've ever eaten anything and felt anything. And that's weird. Like I didn't eat food and feel a burst of energy or eat food and feel anything. If anything, my attitude was like, nothing can make you feel like anything. And that was kind of this first indicator, like, huh, I don't think that's normal. I think food is supposed to actually do a metabolic process inside of you. But that was the first indicator to realizing that I couldn't feel. Yeah. When people say something, again, people non-3HO, a friend will casually be like, I have to eat something. (laughs) Like, do you? But then that goes into my selective compassion because I look at them and I'm judging them. Like, how do you not have the control? Why do you need to eat something? Cowboy up. You're fine. Keep up. Let's go. We're moving. We're on our way to do something. (laughs) And instead, Hmm. I get quiet. That's my internal dialogue. (laughs) That's the inner judgment. (laughs) That's the inner judgment. But my, but to the outside, I just get quiet. I'm like, 
All right, let's go get you something to eat. Are you eating? No, I'm good. I'll have a nice tea. Um, and, and this is such a really, what you're bringing up, it's so, it's such good fodder because this realization around being hungry has made me realize that it's why dating has been so hard for me. What's the first question people ask when you date? Like, well, what do you want to do? Or what do you want to eat? And what I didn't know is that that question, what do you want to eat, actually triggers a very messy state inside of me because I have no idea what I want to eat. Because going back to a choice, right? We didn't get choices. And so therefore, whatever the mechanism of a normal state of feeling hungry, choosing to eat, eating it, this normal, normal, healthy development is so subjugated in my own energy system that the simple idea of, oh, I'm recognizing hunger pains, not squeezing them into something else so that I don't feel them, which is an unconscious default process in my body. It's a, it's a form of trauma response when you grow up in food insecurity. But I wouldn't have named my lifestyle food insecurity. I, didn't, I wouldn't have called it that, even though I knew we were on these special diets, because I still held that nostalgic place that these diets were special and unique and good for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I still do. <laughs> I, <laughs> they're in me. Mm. I still, um, I, again, I, I use my non-3HO friends for correlates. Yeah, yeah. I had recently, I had to convince some of my best friends. We, I, I do, we have family dinners. We, I, and I've created a, a tribe outside 3HO as well that I love. I've mentioned it. They're a core group of people that are amazing. And we, they, they, I just was like, can we ever do Indian? And they're a whole bunch of like, I don't like the smell. And I was like, okay, so can I just choose a place? <laughs> and we went to Indian and during the course of the meal, I was explaining food. And it seems crazy that in LA I'm having this conversation, but I was. And we were at a restaurant called Badmash, which is amazing if you're ever in LA. And for me, that's my mac and cheese. That's my comfort food. It's my potatoes. Yeah. That's that's my that's my mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. And I'm I was I, I get so excited when I eat Indian food, but I don't know how you eat it at a restaurant. Because I want to eat it on the ground, forkless, dipping everything into a chapati or naan. And but I get this stillness about me from the longer meals, which to me were like the best meal of the week. But it creates again this this difference where within three HO world, such normalcy. Non three HO world, you realize you have that has I at least have that hesitation. Okay, mm. fork. Mm. Use a fork when you eat this. Um, you're in a restaurant, Darcy. Um, like going through this checklist of of assimilation in the outside world. But I also, when I eat Indian food, that is when I gorge. If I were to come home with korma, masala, what a whole thing, I will eat it all, and then I'll eat the rest for breakfast. I lose my boundaries. And again, I can hear these people and these non-3HOers or joiners who are go- and going, see, none of that's so bad. I do that with Italian food. I do that and mitigating the impact of this. 
but it's understanding the sequence that each one of these things, little by little by little by little, has compounded to take pieces of our heart and our identity that we never got back. That's right. It's our essence that never got developed. The essence just got yes. froze, frozen over like a glacier. And there are large amounts of rocks and bedrock and other uh -huh. levels of, of earth that have been um, piled onto that early innocence. Yeah. And so I just, I think, I, I appreciate you wanting to dig into the food part because again, it all matters. It, it matters so much. And, and one, I, one of the things I think I want to add on top of that is when, when spiritual abuse is added on top of um, fundamental basic needs of food deprivation, love deprivation, touch, attention, being delighted in, yes. being secure, being safe, being seen, being heard. So there's certain basics of, of development, and I've been learning a lot more in therapy around these things. Um, but there's something called betrayal trauma. And there's a whole book on this motherfucker, right? And mm. y'all got to listen because it's so powerful to hear these concepts so that we don't keep minimizing what's happened to us because the early developmental time affects our brain and body relationship and all of the mechanisms that happen between our brain and body. And to bypass that um, is missing out on a critical point of actually what happens in early childhood development and, and what happens why it continues to go today because something as simple as oh i'm hungry well you're going to eat for the rest of your life so until we actually or you're not right um until we actually go into you, you think time heals it but no these are parts of me that i've never felt and what's blowing me my mind is that if i didn't learn to start feeling this i would just be a more high functioning version of this with more ulcers more arthritis more of the things that I would keep swallowing um, and, and compacting in my body as opposed to slowing it down and being like, why do I have so much inflammation when I drink water, you know, mm -hmm. um, or whatever. And so again, I didn't have an identity around being hungry. This has only recently emerged. And I find that so fascinating where other people might've had real food issues their whole life, you might be the one like me, like, no, that ain't my problem until you realize something else has to melt before you can actually feel that next layer of yourself. And for a good reason, because survival is survival. And I'm discovering my body doesn't feel hungry to help me. No, my body and never feels hungry. I do not feel hungry. And um, again, I, I can... This is where I think for me, I would say having a therapist who understands cults has yes. been so critical to me I can't because I have never discussed food with another therapist because it just seems like quite honestly, a personal failing of mine that I need to just get past. Mm. So much of this is um, my inability to have relationships. Well, that was because my mom and dad were my mom and dad. My inability to, Pause. you know, the amount of second gen that I've heard say that, right. That, that the right. problems I have is because my parents were la da 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 da. Right. And how untrue that is around like the non-safety of relationship. Again, the last two years, I've really been able to wake up to through the lens of CPTSD, why intimacy and relationship with a friend or with a partner has never, has, has turned on every alarm bell inside. And so I pushed them away in judgment. 
hundred percent. And that's where the, you know, as we discussed therapy, if you can get a cult therapist who has somebody knowledge of it, it's, it's an epic change. Mm. You know, I learned, I learned many years ago and it was in my therapy for my marriage that Mm. my love language, if you haven't read that book, I love it. um, Love love languages. My love language is acts of service. It's not acts of touch. It's acts of service. I Mm. show you love by doing something for you. I show you love by acting. I, and I actually prefer that. Um, the, I would tell you the, one of the best gifts I ever got was an ex-boyfriend. Um, I had, I, I had to be at work very early and I hadn't gotten gas and I woke up in the morning early to go get gas. And he was like, I took your car last night and I filled your tank. I was like, that was like a diamond necklace. (laughs) I couldn't, but I couldn't believe that somebody would do that for me. I couldn't accept it. I loved it. It was amazing. But my point being, I want to pull this all together in the sense of just reminding people who are listening and taking the opportunity to listen. Just because we as second gen seem so normal, seem so strong. And I resent that word, by the way. Strong. It's um, a good one. I hate the that amount word. of times. Yeah. The amount of times I had a, a, a student come up to me once when I was teaching and she said, you know, you're really an amazing teacher um, and you're so strong, but I think that strong is a bit much. And it was like the first time that I heard like, what? Anyway, keep going. Right. But my is to just understand that we are all a result of these experiences that bit by bit took parts of us. And 3HO Yogi Bhajan has responsibility for that, period. And I just, I I struggle when I hear anybody try to take that away from us. Our parents, so back to what we just said, my mom and dad didn't raise me. (laughs) 3HO did. Happy, healthy, holy. Not so much unhealthy. I was very unhappy and wholly as subjective. If you think the TSA agent did a great job of explaining Sikhism to us, I'm not yeah, sure. And giving us this, you know, inflated false version of it that makes us yes. think that the, we're the elite of the original teachings that include Kundalini yoga. I mean, the convolution of right. that, that puts us at an elite segment above the Indian Sikhs in general I mean, the whole thing just starts Terrible. to get extra convoluted. Um, and our parents, even if they did keep us in their household, they weren't raising us. No. Because that's what it means to grow up in a cult. It's what it means to grow up in an ethos where effectively our parents gave over their will, which means they were no longer making choices on our behalf or on their own behalf. And so as children to be born into that level of environment, we're emulating emptiness. We're emulated perfected disassociation in a way because our parents became disassociated as their own mechanism of complex PTSD, whether they recognized it or not. And then we just are mimicking that because we're just trying to get some basic love, attention, food, and we learned very young, we had to perform for food, yes. perform yes. for approval, 
And I liked what you said that you learned pretty quickly, the closer into his parameter, not just did you eat, but you ate good. You got to go to good restaurants and get gorged in food and other types of things. So going back to the idea that YB was the currency, being in his environment was the currency. That's when somebody called to say, I want you to become my secretary. People ended their lives and flew, you know, you listen to Sarah Pavan, she went at 16 because Mm -hmm. that's what was the privilege of being asked. Like, you don't know her parents supported it. She supported it. How come that's the currency? Yeah. And then you even add in, I was thinking about the fact that my father was up until he died. My father was very, very low income. I mean, up until he passed away, he had been living in New Haven. I, myself and other friends would send him money so he could get to solstice because there was nothing more important to him than getting to solstice every year Mm. because he wanted to do the blind walk. Mm. Um, Right. But he believed it. And my father was dying. That is so symbolic, by the way. That's just so, the symbolism is unreal. Absolutely. But I think about the fact that I would be sending my father money while he was still sending Yogi Bhajan money. Well, I might as well have written him a direct check. No matter where you were, you felt here he was continuing to grow his lifestyle. Yeah. And people, no matter their income level or not, were sending him their money. Yeah. And, you know, I add that in because in the spirit of finance, uh, this is something my therapist helped me understand. And I didn't write it in the statement I wrote, but it's the financial insecurity. Mm. And I mentioned it earlier. I work. I am a workaholic. My boss constantly is like, Darcy, stop working. I'm afraid to not work. Mm. And I'm afraid to not have health care. I am. I it's just it's a fear based thing. I wish I could take vacations like I'm afraid to. Mm. And I equate that to the financial my therapist actually helped me understand when I was, I was commenting on it so casually one day. And she was like, Darce, that absolutely is being, is growing up in a, in an ashram environment where Mm. you give and give, you feel, you feel selfish. You feel like you don't deserve it. I should be helping the community. Um, And I, it's, it's ingrained that I'm not allowed to live at a certain lifestyle. And that I have to work harder and harder. And again, it's just all of these things that have impacted most of us. So true. Oh my God. The, um, the working, the, 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 the always busy, the always the pressure, um, Mm -hmm. forced to keep up the pace of a teenager. So the like that's the early experience but the 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 pace i want to kind of say how that pace goes on throughout life and it's somewhat like what you're talking about it's the overwork it's it's not being able to settle because there's always more that needs to be done and and i've noticed that energy in me for so long but never knew what it was and it would felt like this pulse that was so fast but it wasn't at my heart it was at my rib cage so it was like kind of in my belly and to the, I've never linked it before. 
until these last couple of years around the financial, the, the, the inner kind of constant running, the constant, um, the inner pace. The constant need to contribute to the whole. That's part of being a part of an ashram or a compound. Mm. You're, you're, you wake, you're again, you and I both were very laughing a little bit about how early we both wake up every day. I wish I knew how to sleep in. I wish I knew how to actually relax. Mm. I envy people who do. I really do. I envy them. I, I, I genuinely get jealous watching people know how to take time off and enjoy it. Yeah. Have peace and joy. Yeah. I've had to train myself to sleep in folks. I mean, there were two, three years straight where my active daily practice, I was literally my daily practice was practicing sleeping in and I would wake up early at four or five in the morning. And then I would actively practice, take a hot bath. And then I would lay back down. Then I put something over my eyes and I put earplugs in and they were just doing a series of things to retrain my system. Now I do think I'm a natural early riser, um, but the ability to actually, like I've had to do a lot in therapy to actually learn how to not wake up frantic. So mm -hmm. wake up like <gasps> alerted yes. and yes. And Oh, Jesus. Like, what is that? And it reminded me of the energy at 3.30 a.m. in any ashram when all the adults were gasping to try to get to, to sadhana to be one of the people. I just, I'm smiling because I don't think I've ever thought of it like that, but you're right. Um, I, and unfortunately, <laughs> I, I have had the, the men I've been in relationships with, my ex-husband and my ex-boyfriends have all been late risers and have been, and I've been like, I don't expect anybody else to get up. It's just me, but I get up. Like I'm ready. There's no add up. There's no ramp time. I am zero to 100 the second I wake up and I wake up very early mm -hmm. and it's unset It's unsettling. And I think the thing is, is it's, it's unsettling for other people. I don't, you know, I have to teach again, I use my Myers-Briggs, I use my T to train myself to, okay, get up, have a routine that even though you don't need it, recognize what the impact you have on the people around you if your energy is not right. And train yourself to not carry that energy that you created your whole life to survive forward into other people's lives to force it upon them. Yeah. It's like, it's like bursting it out into other people as if it's a normal state, but yeah. really it's a high revved engine and our high revved engines have been, we've been told that they're, you know, peaceful white Cadillacs, but they're not, they're high speed racer engines, you know? Um, and so I think that's some of the convolution between self and the identity, the cult identity that's been placed on us that we think is our personality. We think all these things are uniquely our own and we start to hear, whoa, you do that, but in an interesting, slightly adapted way. Oh, you do that too? Um, it took me a long time to get out of the habit of cold showers for me, you know, because I could really see how it supported my day and it brightened everything. And it kind of kept that morning pace up to be more productivity. And I could tie it all into personal development and success, you know, success traits instead mm -hmm. of looking at them as trauma patterns, right? So for most of my yeah. life, I use them as my high achievement um, 
methodology. And then it doesn't help, as we talked about last episode, that the world starts making it extra trendy, right? So now cold showers and cold plunges are all the rage, but it doesn't change. That popularity out there doesn't change my need to learn how to regulate inside my body. Uh Um, So wanting to change that frantic pressure induced way of moving through the world does take therapy. It does take other people seeing you and helping you learn how to adapt and make links between ways of, of operating and where that thing might've come from, from growing up in a cult environment. Right. Right. And again, is it okay for you to carry it forward? Again, there are things that work for each of us. We talked about this last time. You don't have to disavow things that bring you some, bring you comfort. It is okay and safe to have comfort in things that, and routines or patterns that don't pose harm. You know, it's not all or nothing. And I think that that's where also some of us have struggled with the judgment we've gotten. It's, you you can be a hybrid in 3HO. <laughs> you can be out, you can be in, you can have your whole name, you can have part of your name. You can do whatever the fuck you want. And we, because we didn't make this choice for ourselves. Right. Adults who chose to enter chose to enter and chose to follow rules. We did not. So we get to manifest this however we damn well please. And with the full support of one another and whatever that looks like and whatever that sounds like. And the same thing for the adult. And I can't believe this because here's me, I'm 50. I'm an adult and I still say I'm a second gen kid. And we have to, we have to differentiate it. I have to differentiate. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, and this is what I was also thinking about from last week. Just the judgment has to stop. But I think for the judgment to stop, the conversation has to continue. And as we discussed today, there are quite, there are things I'd love to learn about for me to take my selective compassion out of my own head and because we, we have it and understand. I would love mm. to seek to understand mm. and listen to some of the whys. And I think also for any adult who's joined consciously, intentionally, to understand that though you may hear some stories and some history that are as simple, that I don't even mean just using the word simple, that was assholic, that are, um, I had a bad education. Go, well, you know, you could have had a bad education here. Um, Or I had this with my parent. And then you mitigate it and you reduce it and you reduce the trauma and the impact of it. That's you doing keep up and shut up. Mm. Mm. So yeah, keep up and shut up. If you're going to keep doing that and mind your business. If you don't have a willingness to hear the conversation. Thank you for that. And remember that you may do your trauma response as a coping mechanism for the rest of your life. And it's just, (laughs) okay. It's okay. You want to know why it's okay? Because it's, it's what you need. Like the, the reason we do what we do is because we need it. And so you definitely don't want to go on the self-attack, not doing these things. And it's all the more reason why we absolutely need therapy. We got so indoctrinated out of getting a therapist. So if you're facing kind of this, I'm a loser, I'm a failure. If I get therapy, I get it. And 
get one anyway, especially one in a cult, because the amount of layers that you think are your personal problem, your personal soul journey, they just start. They just start. So many of these things are actually symptomatic of, of our complex um, experiences, whatever range of experiences you had from growing up in this community and this, this cult. And um, I want to go through a couple of them before we wrap up and so that you get to, to talk on it, but you talked about um, you don't want to get noticed out of fear of attention. Right. Um, we talked about the sexually strained peer environment, boundaries, lack of boundaries, the lack of boundaries as normal. Um, the range embedded, working all the time, um, the afraid to be sensual, kind of like staying where you're concealing your body, the idea that strong is not something that is a um, a compliment to you, mm -mm. the master of being fine, um, and even that violation, when we have certain levels of violation, um, especially like when we're touched early, um, we are comforted in violation. So this is a really important thing that is a very convoluted thing that we can take as a personal response, but it's not, is that when we have an early set point where violation is normalized. So for me, that became normalized to have chiropractors or healers touch me in an inappropriate way was a normal thing to me. And I didn't know it was normal. Um, until but several times in my adult life, those things continued to happen to me. And it was only in the last couple of years that I linked it to the fact that in 3HO, we didn't have body autonomy. We didn't, we had lots of strangers that were in charge yeah. of us regularly. And, and we touching had our bodies. And touching our bodies and watching us, the way you brought up adults watching us in the shower was a really mm -hmm. interesting point. Um, but I also want to point out that anybody who as an adult went back to solstice or European yoga festival like me knows that all the broke people are the ones that are doing seva. So meaning we have to do an, ex no, we're all doing seva. Let me qualify that. Everybody's doing seva, but the broke people are doing work exchange. So a lot of us are actually attending, going back to like your father to pay for, um, for solstice. Many of us couldn't afford solstice in adult life yoga students. And what do we do? We're work exchanging. Well, what is one of the work exchanges? Children's camp. Yeah. So what does that mean, folks? Think about that. It means that people are volunteering that are too broke to pay for these things themselves. And it's why cults, religious cults and other types of cults attract pedophiles and other abusers because nobody's watching these children and it just becomes a built-in part of the ethos that children are touched inappropriately because nobody's watching. So if that's normal to you as a kid, you grow up either touching and doing inappropriate things to others as your story shared, um, or we allow violation and even magnetize it yeah. because there is a normalcy and then we actually judge healthy boundaries. So I remembered a couple years ago learning about consent and finding myself quite irritated at it. Like, why do they got to ask everything? Can I touch your hand? Me Can too. I, touch your I, elbow? I love that you're saying that. I felt exactly the same way. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I did. I judged it. I judged. I will be honest. I judged hashtag me too. Hmm. 
I was so judgmental of the Me Too movement. I couldn't even understand it, which is crazy because I went to an incredibly powerful all girls high school in Los Angeles. That was my transition, by the way. I went from the have nots to the haves in two years. And it was, but it's a school that has turned out multiple, multiple major, major female leaders in the world Mm. who refer to the high school easily. And I, who were very Me Too movement. And I was like, stop whining. Handle it. Don't allow it. And that's, it's just, it's shitty. It really is. It really is. Shitty. And it's the selective compassion. The untreated medical issues. Um, the forced keep up, I think this is such an important thing because what it essentially we're talking about here, Darcy, is we're talking about how well we've learned to override our own instincts and our own needs. Mm-hmm. And when we aren't feeling ourselves, we can override because we're actually tending and reading the environment. So we're not including ourselves, and it's, it's such a powerful survival mechanism that actually, um, eliminates our own our own self um and if that's normal you don't know you're doing it so if that becomes the basis of your personality it's a powerful thing because you're constantly pouring out into others and uplifting others but at the expense of you but you wouldn't know that because you never had the you in the first place well and then that's where again the linkage right so even taking the me too so we're strong which means we don't allow things to happen to us because if we allowed things to happen to us, we can't talk about our childhood. So we're strong. So instead we don't allow it. It's, it's so interwoven into our psyches Yeah, and it can come across. It's, it's not that I'm consciously as an example, I'm not consciously out loud going, you allowed this. I'm just feeling it inside. It is therefore impacting my course of action. It is impacting my lack of sympathy. I'm staying quiet because I've trained myself to stay quiet because I do know better. I know what I'm thinking is wrong. So I've learned to shut up, (laughs) but I have to condition myself not to feel it, not to react to it. So therefore my face often lacks the emotion of what I'm feeling. I don't cry. Mm. I, I don't. I, I mean, I cry over things that I can't control. Like you heard this last time, I cry over animals. I don't cry over people. Mm. And that goes that goes to me to what you were just saying. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So Darcy has brought us into some really interesting topics. I'm going to ask you to... Um, to go back right to your impact statement and, and share with us some, some more of your just everyday lived awarenesses of, of waking up to your own reality. Okay. So I did the impact statements as I was writing this and I did it in order of importance earlier. What I read was the overview and these were the, to me, the most important thing, how they impacted me again in importance. So first off was parenting. Um, My son was seven. He asked me to make toast. I hesitated as I wasn't sure I wanted him handling electricity. 
I was in my kitchen and like a ton of bricks hitting my body and my stomach. I had the complete emotional memory of that. I was that age when I was sent to live alone. I lost my mom because a man decided that children would be better off without parents. I lost my childhood. In some new test kitchen on 100 acres in New Mexico at seven years old, I was alone. Here I am in 2006 questioning if my son should make toast. In my son's early years when he was four, my then husband and I started family therapy. I didn't know what I didn't know, but I did know that my instincts were wrong. I needed to learn how to be a mom and how to actively parent. I needed to learn that my son didn't need to sort it all out and that he wouldn't be just fine. If I didn't become a mom, I needed to learn empathy and sympathy as I had none. I needed to learn to participate and show love openly. I needed to learn that he deserved to hear my love. I needed to learn to be open and at school functions and feel safe asking my friends questions on the house. I had no context about simple things like at the PTA or making a lunch. I needed to learn that the education, quote unquote, I received wasn't one. And I didn't know how to act or behave with basic things like homework and play dates. And what type of gifts do I send to a party? These most basic everyday common sense things had no context in my world as I lacked the history. The hardest part of the years of family therapy was to learn how to show my son consistent, genuine love and how to take what I knew I felt and communicate it to him. I would add one thing to that because it was, um, I remember being humble enough to ask friends questions, but one of the most embarrassing things in my life was um, as my son was in school, I had to email his teachers and explain I didn't know how to do his homework and try in my very best way in this very, very perfect community that we were living in, white picket fences and all, explain to teachers that I had this, I would call it an alternate upbringing and that I didn't go to traditional schools and try to find the teacher who would be kind enough to help me because I really didn't know how to do first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. I didn't know how to do it with him and help him. I didn't know how to make a diorama. Um, so that was something from parenting. Mm. I then go into marriage and relationships. I was dating a man who had become my husband. He looked at me one day in the middle of one of our fights and said, Darcy, you don't fight like a normal person. If you don't get help, I can't continue. I had no clue. I did know that I had lost a four-year relationship with a great man for the same issue. However, I thought that was his fault for not loving me enough to take the abuse when I got angry. I was angry. I fought like my life depended on it. I physically hit. I emotionally poked to incite. I hit over and over, daring men to hit me back. I would scratch, bite, and throw objects at you. My rage so embedded in my very being that I had no ability to control it when I was angry. I wanted to fight with every ounce of my soul. That was a pattern that started in the ashram when I was beat up by an older bully over and over. So when I would hit, when I would get hit, I followed suit. I started personal therapy. We started relationship therapy. I knew and believed that people always leave and that I would be sent away if I didn't act right. So I set up each relationship preparing to be abandoned. Ultimately, this was a cycle for my entire adult life. There is a saying, damaged people are dangerous because we know we can survive. I was that person. We need to survive manifested from the time I lost control at seven and beat up to the first time to gradually ensuring to not being on the receiving end of it myself so I would become the attacker. I distinctly remember the first time I was beat up in Española by XYZ person. He had my leg in a hold I couldn't escape. 
I flipped back and my head hit a rock. And in that moment, I was never again going to let any man get the better of me. It started a cycle that lasted until I was 38 and I was arrested for assaulting my then husband. The judge gave me anger management therapy. And in all of my therapies, I had never done anger management specifically. Until then, I didn't know I was angry. I thought I was fine. I learned how to be angry and allow it without feeling like it was a failure to feel. I don't believe in marriage as a concept. At 12 years old, I was at the ranch and Yogi Bhajan had taken a personal interest in me. He personally brought me before him and engaged me. I felt special, so honored. The ranch was the Española home of Yogi Bhajan. I've actually already gone into all of this. Um, he personally assigned us. He knew that if we, he, we knew that if he knew who liked who, he would assign you to someone else. I was engaged to a 17 or 18 year old boy. The arranged marriages had nothing to do with love. And that set a foundation for me that marriage wasn't about love. It was an arrangement business. There was no romance, no falling in love. This framed every single relationship I ever had. I've always been with men who are not monogamous and cheated on me. Then when I found out, I just accepted it as if it was okay. And that is what I deserved. I always felt that if, as I was taught in 3HO, three years of YB lectures, that is my job, my role, my place to acquiesce and abide by what the male wants. Mm. Mm. That is such a good point. I'm just going to say some things. Infidelity as normal. My instincts were wrong. Emotion. I learned to emotionally poke to incite. Right. That is embedded rage. Um, I knew and believed everyone always leaves. How deeply yeah. Im embedded. I, I definitely agree that my sense of love was that everyone that lo I love leaves. So yeah. love is not safe. That was an unconscious thing. It was not safe to put in the to, to allow yourself to love because right. then you would be get hurt and they would leave That's anyway. Right. And they would go away. And so I just would rather not need anyone or anything and be strong within myself. And that, right. that's, that's who I am. And I want to qualify it because I speak to the anger so much. Like I said earlier, that 95% of the time, you wouldn't know I have this rage in me. But when that rage blew, when that kid flipped me and had my leg in a hold, if you got, so the situation that, and I will share this openly, the situation that led to the assault on my ex-husband was my ex-husband had realized after 17 years he was gay. And I walked in on him with another man in our home in bed. And I went to kill him. I mean, it was, and there was this moment. And admittedly, of course, he was hella stronger than me. And, um, but I went from zero to rage. If I got mad, there was no in between. Well, that's pretty traumatic. So I can understand that. It's traumatic, but I went from zero to rage. And I went from zero to rage when I got mad, period. Yeah. And not, yeah, that was necessarily traumatic, just, but I just want to qualify that the assault thing had a caveat of a fairly extreme situation, but then go into once again, for years, I had been tolerating that quietly, not saying a word. I knew I didn't say anything, but I knew. And I don't know you personally, Darcy, but I do want to add on to the added convolution of that level of sexual repression, the normalcy of being in a marriage 
Like, how does something like that happen? Well, I'm not talking your situation, but in general, when you grow up in such repressed, convoluted sexuality environment, where you're supposedly learning kundalini yoga, which is the science of your sexual energy, and we're not actually learning that. We're learning a false form of that with a lot of sadist sexual terror happening underneath the surface. And there was tremendous amount of normalized infidelity of because so many arranged yep. marriages happened without there being love and the real loves lived amongst each other. Um, so that level of repression and manipulation only breeds future convoluted marriages where we're not noticing it, right? So how do you end up marrying a man who's actually gay and all the stories? It's not unique to you. Right. All I'm saying is, you know, how, how do I end up repeating a marriage right. where the, the husband cheats on me as an alcoholic, does all the same exact things at the environment I come from. It's because we repeat because of that safety, right? There's right. a form of normalcy to that convolution. And you consider allowing it for yourself. You do allow it for yourself. You do allow it. Because again, back to you are, we were taught to acquiesce. We were taught to shut up. And so I tolerated it for too long. And I would say qualified to this day. He's one of my best friends. Beautiful. We got through it. That's so cool. <laughs> um, he actually told the judge the reason I didn't get in trouble. He told the judge what happened um, because we both went too far. Damn. But by the same token, it was also too far that we were too many years into me allowing that that yeah. was okay for my, that was okay for me to have as love in my life. Yeah. That, that um, was enough, right? That was enough. It was enough. Even though yeah. it was empty and not fulfilling and all the things. But you stay married. Acquiesce. Um, next up is that was a good word. Food and sleep deprivation. It may seem strange that food and sleep are third. There's no way to help someone. Oh, I said that part. My food issues continue to this day. In children's camp, we were fed the same exact breakfast for weeks. Oranges and old bananas and occasionally yogurt. For dinner, mung beans. These were all served out of a white bucket slopped into a bowl on the ground. I think I may have read this already. Uh, yeah, I highlighted that part. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me skip that one. I think I stopped though. No. Um, education. Starting in the Dorchester ashram for first and second grade, we were in a Montessori system. We were brought in a group, as a group in a van daily which again, in hindsight, is just so culty. Here we all a little were in our little white turbans hanging in our little large Jeffrey Dahmer van to the Montessori school. Um, we alternated between going to school in Boston and being schooled at the ashram. The period was short-lived and in Española, we did a mail order system. It was the 70s, 19 version. That was a 1970s version of homeschooling. All of us, regardless of age, taught in a single trailer by a man and a woman without teaching credentials to my knowledge. We were allowed and encouraged to study mostly what we each loved. The range of grades in the single trailer room was from second to ninth grade. With two teachers, it was near impossible feat to ensure we received proper education. When I left 3HO in seventh grade, my mom had no records of the school system that Los Angeles would accept. As well, she was changing my last name so 3HO couldn't find me. Both didn't work, they found me. This happened repeatedly, so I had to test to gain entry and I was held back a year. I didn't know proper cursive. My written schools were skills were inadequate and not age skilled. My math was rudimentary and I couldn't solve and show work. I had no science. The worst part was not actually the inadequate education. The worst part was I had zero ability to relate to other children in a structured environment. 
My first year out, I spent more time in the principal's office for beating up peers than not. I was angry. I didn't understand anything about being a friend. I didn't know how to make a friend and I didn't know how to hold one. I was ostracized all the way through high school. I had no reference to normal history. So conversation and how to behave at a birthday party were unknowns. So I fell to my place and I became a bully. I binged ate, I binge ate. I stole food from people's lunches as I still lived in fear that food wouldn't be there. I hit, I kicked, I bit. My inability to relate and have normal friendships carried deep into high school. For three years, my father and some random 3HO friend would show up and would find me in some school in Los Angeles and take me back to New Mexico. I would go back to Española for periods in and out until eighth grade, and I would beg my mother to let me say because it was safe for me. There was my naive self wanting to be in New Mexico. My friends there felt safe despite any bullying. Life outside 3HO was terrifying. I desperately wanted to be in India. In New Mexico, as Uma, I was normal. In Los Angeles, as Darcy, I wasn't. In high school, I attempted to follow standardized education norms, but I struggled as I couldn't wrap my head around the confines of the expectations. So if I loved something, I was engrossed in it. If I had no contests, I simply failed the class. That was how I learned from my earliest wage, do as I want, because no one's going to change that. Mm. Mm. Um, I would also add there, though, that in high school, I got very lucky and I found several people, including my best friend, Paige, who had, had, has, I still, I call her parents, mom and dad. And I started to be, I had friends who became patient to teach me. At school itself, I didn't know how to structure. I didn't know how to, um, I didn't understand click dynamics. I didn't understand how to do so much. And I engrossed myself into theater, which was really helpful. And I found some amazing people who are still in my life to this day. And I say that to qualify that loyalty, as we discussed in the last call, is so important. And I have some amazing, amazing people in my life who were patient and taught me how to normal. <laughs> yeah, I just want to speak to your no man's land, you know, just kind of like the in between, yeah. you know, of, of over here, you felt normal over here, you weren't, but you were, you were trying to assimilate. So this, you know, it's, it's. It's something that's so unique to cult survivals, survivors and, yeah. and children of cults that once again, Darcy's advice to get a therapist that's familiar with cult um, can really help us break down some of these um, really crystallized forms of false identity that have been um, curated inside of us. So the next one is sexuality. And again, I'm going to edit on this one. But when you are seven and eight and the environment you are in is without parents and there are no parameters to guide right and wrong and the attention and comfort you get is crawling into beds or on sofas with other girls as you get older and older, your view of sex is formed. Your cuddles turn sexual and it's comfortable and it feels good. So you allow it. Orgasms feel good. Sexual, um, I don't like how I wrote this. Um, I, like I was just going to say it out loud. Sexual abuse made me feel loved. And yeah. I think what I like about saying that is it just goes back to, it's not abuse until you understand that it's abuse. So it made it, you know, yeah. it's a form of touch and comfort and, and um, nourishment. It is. And it's crazy. Oprah is who taught me that. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I heard it on an episode of hers. Um, when you are really friends great. with a when you are friends with a beautiful 14 year old, uh oh, hold on a second. My plug came undone. Two seconds. 
So sexual abuse made me feel loved. When you are friends with a beautiful 14-year-old girl being groomed, and she has chosen to be a secretary of Yogi Bhajan, and the only and you both get to stay at the ranch, and you see that she gets beautiful things and treats and special food for being the next secretary, because it was very clear, you know that's a goal. When you watch a beautiful 18-year-old Kartaputik over and over again be led to a room without the main house and followed minutes later by Yogi Bhajan, and she is given the most beautiful jewels and clothes and treatment, you think, be her. What do I have to do? I knew she would leave the room crying after he left because I waited for her. I knew she had bruises, but it was Yogi Bhajan, so whatever was happening had to be an honor, right? When I was brought in to see Yogi Bhajan at 12 and he personally engaged me to an older teen, I felt special. I mean, he personally assigned me to a man. It was a very big big deal. Many people in 3HO had no access to him. I had earned all access. And when I heard lectures at women's camp that Yogi Bhajan gave on the role of women to serve the man, I understood. When he spoke of rape, that if it happened, it was the fault of the woman, I believed him. My sexual development was that I was not in charge of my femininity and my sole goal was to serve whomever showed me the attention. This guided my entire adult life. I don't hug. I don't allow intimacy. I do not trust anyone with my body. I continue to find myself in relationships with misogynists. And when you are told being gay is wrong by the teachings of Yogi Bhajan and your mom ends up a lesbian, you find yourself embarrassed and even disgusted as this forms an irreversible break in you. I cover my body as I was taught to do and I do not allow myself any sexual power as we were taught. And that is all what the man wants. Mm -mm. So good. The last one is the guardians program. In the guardianship program, I was lonely. As a child, I was firmly lonely. I was generally unsupervised except the extensive chores to do and the neurotic overkill of pushing my very young body to do perfect yoga poses that strained and hurt me for hours. I had additional ice cold showers as punishment. I was allowed to eat only after the birth children of my guardians. I ate Uncle Sam's cereal with warm goat milk over and over when I was allowed breakfast. It was all I was allowed. The kids had great meals. I know I cooked them. For dinner, after the main family ate, I was allowed to eat. I was gaunt. I was malnourished. I was slapped. I was sleep deprived. I didn't even remember when my birthday was for years. I stole food if we went into town and my guardian would smell my breath once she caught on. And then I would be punished with no food, physical abuse or both. I taught myself not to laugh or make noise because if I did, I was punished. I was not allowed to have joy in that home. In addition to the goats, we had a dog named Maharani. She was an attack dog and often had me cornered. It was known that I couldn't be outside my trailer if she was in the yard or I would risk myself and that to do so was really on me. What I learned in the Guardian program was stay. What I have lost the page, so. It's okay. It was stay silent and take whatever happens because if you talk back, laugh or react, it is worse. To this day, I yep. don't laugh out loud. Sad. I've thought about that this week. I don't. I've always called myself Wednesday Adams. Like it's a reverse joke and that I'm proud of it. Wow. I I read, there was a line that I heard in a song. It's Iris is by the Goo Goo Dolls. When you bleed just to know you're alive. And in high mm. school and in junior high, I would literally dig dig 
dig just to feel pain and dig into me, mm. hoping I would bleed. Because mm. if I bled for just one minute, I could feel something because I was trying to learn to feel. Mm. So I think that to understand the loneliness and the impact of the loneliness, at least on me, and by loneliness, I would qualify that to say, I loved my mom. Mm. I did love my mom. My mom ended up an addict and I absolutely believe 3HO chased her into it. Mm. But I came from a loving woman who joined just to be near me and um, missing her love changed me. It changed me irrevocably. Yeah, so true. So true. There's a few more things you go into here, Darcy, around physical and medical and survivalist mentality. Um, are you done or do you want me? I think okay if I for can... me, I think I may have missed a page, Kurnishan. So if you want, as long as there's not names, if you want to. I'm going to just read a couple of these lines. I feel like what Darcy is doing so well here is encapsulating um, her her, her, her vulnerable experience that she hasn't been allowed to have um, in these words. And I think it can help a lot of us kind of unpack some of the things that we may struggle with and don't even know we struggle with. Um, so I, I'm going to read a couple of these lines in the course of, this is physical and medical in the course of, of my time in New Mexico, while under the care of both guardians, I was given no proper medical or dental care. The impacts of that time carry to this day. I have scars on my legs with repeated untreated injuries from horseback riding and either falling or being kicked. I was severely constipated due to malnourishment. I would go up to, up to two weeks without a bowel movement. I was to take a local 3HO doctor who prescribed that I do crow pose. We talked about that to pass a bowel movement. To this day, I have digestive issues that impact my ability to pass a bowel movement and I'm severely stressed by going to the bathroom. I have a cleft palate and during my time there, I developed an entirely second set of teeth. When I left 3HO and got proper dental care at 13, I'd have 10 teeth pulled from my mouth from both decay and the structure of my mouth. The physical demands placed on us in school and camps were extreme and it was abusive. When we ran 10 plus miles in the desert, we did calisthenics daily in rotations of 100 each. I was the youngest. And if I couldn't keep up, the group was pushed and then I was beat up by the older kids. So I did force myself. I had severe lower back pain my entire life. My guardians, the Wagadus, were obsessed with perfect yogic form. I was made to do positions for literally hours so to attain the perfect form and get great expense to my personal well-being. The extreme expectations on my young body has had medical implications that have carried with me my entire life. My guardians were militant survivalists. I was exposed to an arsenal from the time I got to the Espanola ashram. We were taught the world would end and the mighty Khalsa would live. We would all go up to the solstice site and needed to know how to defend ourselves. I was eight the first time I, got, I shot the AK-47. I was eight at the first time, first of many times I held the grenade. I was eight when I learned to sword fight and got my first sword. The trailer I loved, I loved and had a, a full cache of weapons and I had full access to them when I wanted to touch or use them. It was incredibly unsafe. I had no parameters for what normal children played with. The weapons were what I played with. Damn. And PTSD, weak people blame. I wasn't a victim. I refused to be. I said over and over, this didn't happen to me. This didn't happen to me. This didn't happen to me. It happened. 
and I happened to be there. I avoided all real discussion and I trust no one. No one, 100%. Never have. I avoid with ease anyone getting to actually know me. I am gifted at it and you don't even realize it. I withdraw and hide with ease and can be physically present while emotionally absent all at the same time. I've come to realize this is PTSD. My anger simmers and I no longer lash at whomever is closest. I can self-regulate and withdraw to be with animals as I was taught in Espanola. Horses don't ask me questions. I consistently invite in damaged people and mitigate and parse who knows what sides of me. No one has ever seen all of me, not even me. I have selective to no compassion of, uh, of ability to empathize or ability to empathize. I don't sleep well. I wake up every day before the sun rises and feel guilty if I don't. Woo. I extensively struggle with me in positions of authority and have to continue to work at trusting them. I get defensive and guarded with male bosses. I wanted to speak a couple of those lines. Um, this one, I am gifted at it and you don't even realize it. Mic drop. I think if there is something that is um, a trait amongst kids born in this Dharma, it's this idea of um, as if we're so compassionate and aware and helpful to others. And yet it's actually like this deep, deep deprivation and loneliness inside. And I've only linked the difference because it's like this external auric projection of like, serving others is the basis of our of ourself. Um, and if you think about these things in terms of the convolution of the teachings, and then what happens when children are born into such neglected environments, you don't even know it. So years ago, I was told that I lived disassociated, but that most people would never be able to tell because I had such a bright personality. And it reminds me of that. It reminds me of like, wow, most people wouldn't know this whole thing that's going on because you're so on point, because you're able to read a room, because you can get to task, because you can execute all of these kind of like high functioning aspects. And yet with this really, really deep, um, twisted inner knot. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Again, I'm great at faking it till I make it. I am measured. I am, I, I'm articulate for all intents and purposes. I show up physically, but if you watch me in a room, I actually, I'm, I'm just the master of talking about you. <laughs> I can spend hours talking about you and you don't even realize you didn't ask me a question. <laughs> And I am getting better at the older I get, I'm getting better and better at it. Mm, mm. Um, it, and it has been a stunning realization and I don't even know how to fix it. And I don't know if I want to. Mm. Yeah. And that's your, but role. I've been doing it my whole life. I've been doing, I do it with my family. I do it with my friends. Um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm fantastic. I use the word I'm fantastic at editing. And you think you know me. You don't mm. know shit. <laughs> oh my God. Is that not so good? And you think you know me. It's like, once again, it goes back to openness without vulnerability, right? Yeah. 
I had something, again, life is a series of moments about over the summer, my friends have this major party every single July 5th. There's like 50 of us. It's a big deal. And I'm at a table and one of my friends who I have been friends with also since we were 15 years old, and he knows me a little bit better than most. It, and he definitely has more insight into 3HO than most um, because he chose to participate in some of it. He chose to go to Yoga West. He's done yoga there. Um, he's met my 3HO friends. So he's been more involved. And we're sitting at a table and I don't even remember how the conversation became about me, which of course made me start to get hives. Um, and one of my friends looks at me and she, she's like, she just randomly was like, Darcy, you're so nice. And without even thinking, without even hesitating, he's like, Darcy's not nice. And I, I mean, there was silence and it felt like forever, but it must've been two seconds to which he, he's like, what? She's not. And he goes, she'll lay down her life for you, but she's not nice. And he doubled down and the conversation kept going because of course I didn't know what to say or do, but I went home that night and ever since, and I thought to myself, well, shit, am I not nice? What does that mean? I didn't even know what it meant, but I knew he felt it. And I knew that that was my, I knew that that was my conditioning. I, maybe I'm not nice, but I don't know what that even means now. But I'm the person who, this is a person who legitimately, he went into, a, if he goes into crisis, I've always been one of the first people there. I've been even who his wife calls to see, make sure I'm the first. He's like a kind of a brother from another mother situation. And, um, but gosh, I'm not nice. And I'm still sitting with that. And I'm still sitting with it. It didn't hurt me because and my friend was pissed. My other friend who said it, she was like, Darcy's nice. And I was like, maybe I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, and I just say this to say, as we, there's just so many parts of ourselves that are not there that we don't realize. That's right. And if you functioned your whole existence that way, you wouldn't know it's not there. You know, right. I think that's such an important element for us to get, because again, if you joined a cult, you know, you have a sense of yourself prior, but what we have to do is find an essence of ourself that we've never come to actually know, but it's still in there. And, um, it's, it's so twisted. It is. And to have my mom tell me I have selective compassion to help him say, I'm not nice those link right they have to but mm -hmm. i'm also again like you and i've talked about i'm absolutely the person you need in a crisis i go full tactical i will solve for you i am olivia pope on scandal i will handle it like i am the person who knows how to execute and get it done and stay calm and stay even and but shit does it matter if i'm not nice and not compassionate i don't know well, and there's the abyss in between, right? Like, what aren't you able to feel that fills in the in between, right? right? So it's, again, it, it's one extreme or the other. And when we've operated in extremes, we think it's one way or the other, right? And right. really, there's a whole range in between, folks, that we get to have access to 
Although getting access to it isn't very easily if you've lived without accessing that feeling self for so right. long. And that's just it. Like, I don't even, I know the word. I know the definition. Of course, I know the definition. But clearly, I, I, I wasn't, again, I wasn't even offended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> I, isn't <Wow>. that, <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I'm still not. <laughs> I've thought about it and I'm still not offended. Like, okay. Yep. And and again, this is why it's CPTSD folks and not just PTSD because PTSD is generally an incident that happens, right? And so we have a self and then an incident happens and then we have a different self, a PTSD self. But a CPTSD self is just mean we've marinated in traumatic environments for so long that it, it no longer is traumatic. It's just normal. And when right. something is your normal, then a plant grows in an adaptated state. And so we've all grown into very adaptated states that are pretty magnificent adaptations as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't mean that we haven't left elements of ourselves behind that we've never even had a chance to get to know. Absolutely. Yeah. It's why I appreciate you um, wanting to really bring this part of, of your share to this podcast, um, because sometimes all of the convoluted, magnanimous details of 3HO and all of the crazy pants of, of why be the predator and the choices he made and all the things overshadows the, the, what we're left with. Like what we're left with in every day trying to figure out. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to be a grown 45 year old woman today, not knowing how to make choices around what I want to eat. It's hard, right? It's hard to be you and, and, you know, interact, not knowing that what's a feeling that you're not able to feel that somebody else's normal feeling, you know, like these things break us down. And make us feel very inadequate and 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 not enough. And it's not. It's much easier to kind of tuck that back away and be my hung, high functioning self, than it is to let myself crack open and be this three year old that never got enough food. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you and I signed off the podcast last week, you said to me that I might feel vulnerable for the next twenty four hours. And I will tell you, my first reaction in my own head was, why? Because again, I feeling vulnerable is weak. I don't allow myself to feel vulnerable. Right. Um, there's so much to learn. And I think that so many of us are faced with, do you want to? My mom, right before she died, my mom was sober the last year of her life. And right before she died, about one or two months before she died, she called me. And she was hospitalized for that last year with full liver failure from her addiction. And she called me and she said, can you tell me what happened? And I said, about what? And I was very cold. And she said, in, in 3HO, what happened to you? And I said, no. And she said, I really want to know. And I said, no. <laughs> um, I said, there is no reason in the universe 
for me to tell you the pain and the hell I went through. But here's my mom dying, asking me for something. And I still to this day, I don't think I made the wrong decision because I said to her, it will only cause you pain. I knew she had a limited time left. And I just, the idea of putting that pain on her was just not a choice. It was not a choice to me. Mm. But I say that to say, I think a normal non-3HO person would have bared their soul. They would have been crying. I wasn't. And I wasn't, um, I, I think that we are all making decisions. I am making decisions. I am actively making choices of consciousness for what I want to deal with. <clears throat> and doing this podcast is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And yet you would look at me and there's not been a tear shed. You would not know that you don't, you'll see me this afternoon. I'll go rescue dogs and do adoptions. You'll have no idea that I had an emotional morning because even in the midst of sharing all of this trauma, <clears throat> I was Wednesday Adams and little to no emotion came out of me. And I am trying very hard in preparation for grandchildren being admitting this in preparation for the fact that I genuinely would like to be in love again. My boyfriend passed away three years ago, and I very, very much would like to be in love. And I would very much like to be in love for the first time in my life while actually feeling it. Yes. And I have a whole life ahead of me still. And I think I want to feel it. And that's terrifying. But it's why I am having these conversations. Because I hope that for a lot of us. I really do. It's not too late. It's really not. It's not. I got tingles when you said that. And I wish that for you. I wish you to feel the love while you're in love. And I too wish for love. You know, I yeah. think it's the last two years that I've been able to recognize how unsafe relationship is to me. Mm -hmm. And, and also like, wow, I don't have friends. Um, and I don't know how to cultivate them. Like, the, of course I do because I have communication skills and I care and I love, so that's not actually true, but my CPTSD self will say, you don't have friends because you don't cultivate friends. And it goes back to, um, it's not safe to have people close. My mm -hmm. sense of love is love at a distance. Everybody I've ever loved is left. And so how do you love? How do you let in something when you're in habitual mode of keeping things at a distance? Because I've learned like, that's not safe. And so I, I just really appreciate you, you bringing some of the, the rawness to, to what you struggle with today, that these things, these early situations, as much as you can remove the emotion from it, because that was a part of your training today in everyday real life interactions, you're still actively aware, like, wow, you know, I don't feel this. I don't know this. I can, I can do this. I, you know, and to me, it really reflects your commitment to healing trauma because that's the process. The process is just to become aware of, wow, I do this. And then yeah. starting to make links, not trying to pretzel yourself. How um, 
I really love how in permission you are of like, I might be this way for the rest of my life. I'm not even, I don't even not like it. I like this way of being, you know, that's a part of the process, right? Is to get fully appreciative of the way you are and then start linking why I'm the way I am so that something else gets to emerge, a new way of Darcy gets to show up. Yeah. And to allow to, because I would tell you that, I think I mentioned this on my last call, I have five main friends. I have a lot of acquaintances. I have a very, much like Ashram Life, I have a lot of people around me. We all do. And it's, we have a community and I then created a new community. (laughs) And I have some great people. And I don't want to, I, I really don't plan, I, a lot of them have listened to this, which I'm super grateful for. And I'm going to actually ask them to listen to this one. And I'm going to ask them for another two hours of their life. Um, <laughs> we we try I, to do it in an hour, folks. We do. There's just too uh, much that comes too much out. Trauma. Sorry. <laughs> and I'll buy them all some wine. I have some Zinfandel that I can give. Um, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm terrified that by revealing who I really am, saying things like I'm not compassionate, acknowledging maybe I'm not nice. But at the end of the day, I am the person who will get in a car. And because again, my love language is acts of service. I will be there for you no matter what. And I have been, and I have proven that over and over and over again, my entire life for my friends. Um, I hope that at the end of this, other people who will listen to it, who are in the same circumstances as you and I are, where we're just trying to choose a path forward, but acknowledge the impact that happy, healthy, holy had on our lives from the simplicity of how we dress, though it's not simple, it's complex. And the nuance that we are absolutely all products of being raised in a cult. Yes. And the slow process of what it means to reclaim a self you never had. Yeah. Um, and yet there is this thing, like the more I've learned about cult reprogramming or deprogramming, there is something called the essential self and you can feel it. You can feel the you that you've never had. And it seems odd, but you can, you know, and um, there is a, you know, the essence of Darcy and there's the essence of me. And, um, and then there's all these layers of behavior and conditioning and ways of being that we have learned to have to be. And it can be confusing because some of those ways of being are, are parts of the me that I'm most proud of, you know, right. my most courageous self that I can travel the world, that I'm not afraid to do this, that I can go do this, that I can adapt to any environment, all these things. And so there is this kind of meeting of the selves in, in trauma uh, healing or recovery, as I like to call it, because we're recovering ourselves. We're yeah. literally, there's coats and coats, like I like to call it plaster because plaster mimics the shape of you. So there's Mm -hmm. plaster over the essence of us. And as we crack, like your willingness to say, wow, you're letting it ring through you. Somebody says, I'm not nice. And then somebody else said this. And and yet they all ring familiar, right? So it's like a layer of your plaster cracking to get to the, the, the vulnerable you that was always there that got plastered over. And the only way we do that is by having somebody poke that veil, right? So somebody says something to you and you're like, huh, not nice. 
just like somebody said to me something and you're like, huh, I don't feel anything when I eat. And then, and now you might marinate on that question or topic for years. Yeah. And, and maybe forever even, right? So remember there's not a destination we're getting to, and there's not a right way to be really to get into permission with the way that we are is probably the best thing we can do for ourselves because we grew up with so much abusive language that we're not okay as we are. And so in all your coping mechanisms, in all your adaptations, in all your survivalist ways, you, me, anyone listening, you know, I think the best thing we can do is stop gaslighting ourselves and realize how much gaslighting has been built into the teachings and the healthy, happy, holy uh, culture um, disguised (laughs) as compassion, disguised as love, disguised as community, um, disguised as consciousness, but it's not, it's called gaslighting. So keep up when your body is saying, stop, listen, rest, something else. And we say, keep up. It's a form of gaslighting. So all of the ways that we've gaslit ourselves and each other in the name of spirituality and consciousness. Yeah. So folks, bring it in, Darcy. Where do you want to wrap up here? What do I would just say, I, again, thank everybody. And I thank Yuger and Nishan because I hope as we, I hope people have the, take the time to listen to especially this one for non, for 3HO people, the anthology one, I'm sorry, the anthropology one was very important because again, we have to prove we did this, right? It's important to those still very in, they have to hear it, hear the facts, but this one on the impact and Therapy is not easy to access for everybody. And I want to acknowledge that as I work in some, I work, I have a lot of people who work with me who can't just get a therapist. They can't afford it. And therapy is often not as covered by health insurance. And some people have the opportunity for the reparation process with it. And some do not. But at the end of the day, I would encourage you to just reach out to somebody, maybe know within second gen who's accessed one who maybe could help give you guidance on how to find one, find one that might work for you, leverage the social media platforms, because um, it is expensive. It is, and finances are not easy for a lot of people. So I do want to just say that there are a lot of resources if we ask the questions, which can be done in private message if you don't want to put it out in the universe, but how important it is to leverage the network that we do have from our shared experience to hopefully help you find somebody that you can talk to that works within what you can do. Yeah, and I want to acknowledge that for a lot of people, the internal 3HO network is not safe. There aren't in mm-hmm. a, a strong group of friends. I want to acknowledge that within the OG second gen, there are some strong cliques. Um, yep. and, and we're talking about bonds that are stronger than family. And that's an important element to understand. And then in some of our generations, like I didn't ever receive bonds like that because of my unique situation. But um, so some of us are little islands that um, have never had real close relationships. And yet the nostalgia of community still lives in me. The nostalgia of that level of bonding lives in me. But as I distill it, I realize, yeah, that's not actually closeness. 
-hmm. it was a perceived closeness. Um, it's trauma bond. It's a trauma bond. Yes. It's, it's yeah. interesting. Um, but none, but what I love about what you just said was there are resources that you don't have to publicly post to be able to right. get access to. And that's right. really where I hear Dorsey going with this is 100%. Um, so what Darcy said about getting a cult therapist, like, you know, when somebody has one, it's easier to get a referral to one. Correct. You know? I've so been able to refer like mine. If you email my therapist, she says she's full. Every single person who has reached out to me, I have gotten them in with her. When I say it's 3HO, she's managed to make it work. But that's somebody direct messaging me. Again, not putting Same in the public me. forum, yep. but messaging yep. just me. And this is important because like, I, I'll talk a lot about somatic therapy, but there's other forms of therapy that are really important. Internal family systems is a really important form of therapy. And if you're not familiar with it, look it up. A lot of um, insurances are covered with that. You know, um, cult therapists that are licensed therapists will also be able to get covered by some insurances. Um, there's EMDR and, you know, just start, just start. And if you notice your resistance to therapy, that's okay. Just also recognize that that's not unique to you. It's very much um, within a cult environment. YB specifically talked down about therapists, but um, even within all cults, there is an element to where we're, we're trained to not seek professionals outside the environment. And we all got that. I mean, I thought that was probably one of the coolest things since sliced bread about our culture was that everybody we needed was inside the culture. If you need an accountant, Ugh. if you need a doctor, if you need a chiropractor. And I thought that was a benefit, but now I can see it as a way to keep us from getting actually actual real information that wasn't 3HO based. Um, yeah. And I would also, you know, to the cult therapy again, as Grinishan and I both talked about, I have personally gotten so much out of it, but I would also like to add and reiterate how much I got out of a specific anger management therapist. Good one. And the reason I am saying that is I have this bill board of quotes in my office where I write down things when they hit me and it has things like respond, don't react. Um, you choose what you participate in, just things that hit, hit me personally. And one of them was I heard on a, t on a TV show, it was Grey's Anatomy, not gonna lie. And it was a woman going through <laughs> anger therapy. It was a character. And the character, the therapist says to the character, I'm paraphrasing because it's in my office, but the character is controlling herself. She's completely measured. She's completely measured. And the therapist is like, what do you want to do? Throw this at me, throw me, throw something at me. And the woman's like, no, I refuse. And ultimately the therapist goes something to the effect of you're allowed to be angry at what you've been through. It doesn't make you like them. And for me, I remember crying when I heard it. I lost myself crying and I cry about once every two to three years. Mm. I it resonated and I, the, the direct quote being that I had to, it's okay that I'm angry about my childhood. It is okay that I get angry at my mom and my dad. I can love them and be angry at the same time. I can love my friends in 3HO and be angry that I got the shit kicked out of me at the same time. Mm, mm. Learning how to be angry and not see anger as a weakness was huge for me and seeing an anger therapist 
was possibly learning to handle my rage, my simmering under the current rage that blew mm. um, was so incredibly helpful. You bring up such an important point here um, in that um, now with kind of the worldly awareness of mental health, there is a lot more kind of talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy available, which you might only kind of get some sort of a anger management therapist. So you might find an anger management group, meaning there's there are more free resources, but you might not find a specialist cult therapist, but you might find an anger, anger management right. therapist. So this is a really beautiful hybrid way of starting to address things that we all know we have compacted issues with. Um, your anger might be so steady and so beneath the surface that it hasn't blown up in ways in your life, the way Darcy has explained her life. Same thing with me, but it doesn't mean my compacted anger and rage hasn't been in there. I didn't have, um, you know, moments where I, you know, was arrested or, or beat people up. But when I was in business and, um, and I would be overly stressed, I would be horribly mean and very sharp with my tongue. And so yeah. I started noticing like, wow, I, I have a regulation issue, but you know, this goes back a while ago. And then only like in 2015, I was crying in this public group, woman's group thing I was in. And the woman on the stage says to me, can everybody hear that? And I'm literally just crying, telling my story. She's like, can everybody hear that? And I'm like, what? And she's like, can everybody hear the anger in her voice? And I'm crying. So, right? right. But she could hear that compacted anger that I didn't have access to. So I'm, I'm circling this back around to say, even today, I will feel anger and I can't always recognize it for what it is. Um, yes. And so when we are so used to internalizing anger, which is not a conscious thing, when you grow up in an environment where it's not safe for you to feel an emotion, whether it's right. crying or anger or anything, any upset at all, or any needs at all, the body actually has a default mechanism of repression. And so it's not like I feel anger and choose not to express it. It's I don't even know it's anger. And it turns in on myself to where it starts eating me up instead of just having the healthy volatile release. Um, so going back to seeing a, a anger management therapist, great idea, great idea, because start where you can and start somewhere, but start dealing with emotions. It's dealing with emotions, hundred percent. And same thing. I mean, I, even though I would have those rage moments, I then overcorrected because I felt like I lost control. Mm. So since 2009, in that one moment, I, I haven't so much as raised my voice, Wow, which is a big, big problem also, which is why that quote impacted me. I got arrested. Mm. I lost my cool. I failed. Mm. Right. I failed. Extreme situation. But I looked at it that I failed. Yeah. You got unfeathered. I did. And mm. so therefore I redisciplined. I rehoned in. I got worse. I no longer showed any emotion. Yeah. And think about root lock for a second, folks. Like think about what it means to like squeeze and contain, squeeze and contain, squeeze and contain. Right. And while that might be a healthy practice once in a while during a yoga, at the end of your yoga practice, it's not a healthy practice to squeeze and contain for the rest of your existence. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kind of learned that my physiology formed in a perpetual root lock, that I'm literally living in a root lock all the time as a set point normal. Mm-hmm. So it reminds me of what you just said about um, rebuttoning up, you know, the opposite yeah. extreme. And so it's like when we don't have when we don't have access to our normal, healthy waves of emotions that need to come and go, and they're actually teachers, they're actually tuning us into indicators that we need to pay attention to, we actually lose touch with a really fundamental elemental part of our own existence. And so when we can start to see that the structure of where we come from taught us a fundamental way of being, that's not a healthy, normal human way of being. It's a trauma response. Um, then we can get the help because therapists are there to help us, right? The anger, the, the access to our healthy anger. Mm-hmm. And we're just, you know, I guess for me to sum up, we're not done. We're not. We have so much time ahead of us. So much time. And back to you, choose what you participate in. And there is nothing but opportunity. (laughs) Um, I legitimately know that I have an entire life still to lead. And I'm pretty fucking excited about it. And it's part of why I hope that the impact part of this call can really, you know, you hear this, if it just helps one or two people, if it also helps people stop joining, that'd be huge. Because the bottom line is, if we don't see it, just as a Yogi Bhajan inherently grew a Guru Jugget, it will continue. So we have to, we have to see it. Yeah. And we have to know that the yoga festivals are continuing. The solstices are going to continue. The only reason these things stopped was not because of what's been happening in our community. It's because of COVID. So let's be Uh clear. And, you know, the marketing machine is going to go on and guess what? The marketing machine are these gatherings and is the teacher training because new students come in and they only get taught what they're fed to look at. And mm-hmm. guess what? They get their name changed from the solstice and all of the whole machine is there. And when you're making so much money at it, and if that's your livelihood that you've anchored for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, it's going to be a pretty hard, tough sell to try to get some of these folks to unbrand, right? So yep. we have to know it continues. It, that's just how it goes. So, you know, you thought you left in 92 and all was good. No, that stuff continued growing and it continued yep. growing and it created cults within a cult, within a hyper predator cult. And, you know, that's the uh-huh. jugget. That's the Hari G one because they keep going, breeding this stuff and then new people come in. And so our stories do matter to kind of put a cog in the wheel to say, hey, when somebody chooses, because it comes down to choosing to listen, this story's in the public domain and they can listen. Yep. It's excellent. Um, folks, I want to encourage you to look in the show notes for the links of the books that we talked about, uh, CPTSD from Surviving to Thriving. Um, I'm going to recommend another book um, called The Language of Emotions, What mm. Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You by Carla McLaren. I'll put a link down below as well. And it's it's Remember that, you know, certain books are going to resonate with you when you're ready for them. 
right? So not everything is for you at every moment. If, if, if you attempt to look at something and you fall asleep, that's a sign your system's just not ready for it. It's just okay. You know, there'll be another time that your system's alive and well for it. Same thing with listening to podcasts or whatever, but out of any of this, get yourself some support, get yourself some therapy and get yourself the reimbursement that 3HO is offering until they're not offering it anymore, you know? Um, so take advantage of it while it's here and recognize the amount of indoctrination out of getting help and let that be a part of the propeller. Let that be a part of the propeller to get support because you deserve support. You're not in this alone and you didn't get here alone. Uh, anything last to wrap up, Darlene, Darcy? You, you complete that is it. Okay, I'm, I'm feeling pretty complete too. Um, folks, I want to say thank you so much uh, for your listening attention. As always, um, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcasting platform. It really does make a difference to support us. If you haven't yet um, come over and to support my new podcast, uh, check it out at gurunishan.com and you can click on the link podcast and it'll show you my new platform. It's on Substack. Um, and follow and like and support that work. And as always, if you want to be a guest on this podcast, shoot, shoot me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. Keep in mind that I have no idea who you are when you reach out to me. So give me some context. Um, have in the, in the mail, in the subject line, you, the year you joined and what story you want to tell. You know, if I do know you, I'm not talking to you, but some yoga students reach out to me as if I know them. Like, yo, <laughs> you know how many people have joined 3HO over the span of 50 years? A lot, so many. And you know, and you know how many are cray cray, and I don't want to talk to them. Plenty, uh, you know. So if you want to differentiate between the cray cray yoga students that have joined us the last fifty years, then email me with a proper email, you know. And no, you don't get to talk to me for two hours on the phone sharing me your story when really you should be getting yourself a fucking therapist. Okay, <laughs> I am not your therapist for three ho. Okay, I'm creating wow. a safe space for us to share some really convoluted shit and that's it. Okay. But come coherently for something to say, this isn't just the, the spew session. And I say that with all my compassionate heart, every one of your story is important to share. And yet I don't know who you are unless you help me context it. Okay. So thank you so much. GN at gurunishan.com. And this concludes another episode of the uncomfortable conversations podcast. The Untold Stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Community. If you'd like to contribute to this broadcast and support uh, support me with a one-time or monthly donation, you can do that as well at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. Um, be sure to stay tuned in and I look forward to talking to you on the next episode. Thank you, Darcy, for coming on back. Bye.